Cheer, cheer, cheer. Ladies and gentlemen, you have joined. <laughs> you have tuned into another episode of the Page Turners, man. The podcast where it is books here, books there, books everywhere. Books from a black perspective. Where we pick a book and we walk through it. Uh, breaking it down putting in its proper cultural context um, and just doing what we can to fight uh, illiteracy and more specifically or along with regular reading deficiencies but also racial illiteracy. Uh, There's not a lot of folk out there, man, who are having honest conversations about race uh, and before I don't want you to get the impression that I have it all figured out in regards to race as the great Millie Fuller Jr. states I am still learning and I have a lot to learn and my eyes are being open to so many things uh, but I really, really have a deep love for books. And I decided to, along with the actual on the ground book club page turns that I do with young black males ages nine to 15, I also wanted to do a podcast, man, where for 30 to 45 minutes, three or four times a week, we walk through a particular book and chop it up. And just have a great discussion about it in the very first session that we are dealing with right now man the very first session that we are on we are dealing with a a book that i read several years ago uh after i heard about this brother i wanted to consume everything that i could get my hands on to get a better understanding of uh who he was, what he taught, and for me to get a more clear understanding of what it is like uh, for other black Christians fighting racism, white supremacy. So I picked up Black Theology and Black Power by the late, great Dr. James H. Cone, and it was eye-opening, man. It was eye-opening on so many different levels uh, just to understand that the book was written in 1969 at the height of the civil right i mean the black power movement dr james cone a christian at that time uh was really trying to understand his place uh as a black christian watching the current state of the world uh, how uh, just so many different things were taking place during that time. He was trying to get some clarity in the midst of his frustration, in the midst of his confusion, uh, in the midst of his overall desperation. He penned Black theology and Black power. And there are so many gems in this book Uh and part of the reason why I wanted to keep it 30 to 45 minutes was because I want us to not only listen to what he stated, 
but also to be able to to chew on some of the things that he stated and and digest it and not just hear it but to take it in to wrestle with all those things so and i from the comments that i'm getting from you folks man is that you guys are doing that you are wrestling with this you are it is challenging your stances it's, it's challenging belief systems it's, it's challenging your position it's reassuring some of you in the faith giving you a sense of peace and calm that okay i'm not going crazy by being a black christian uh while fighting white supremacy i i i can do that uh so i'm thankful for that man so keep the comments coming uh you can find your boy on twitter at elgin bailey send me a comment man dm Whatever the case may be, let's chop it up. Uh, I love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, you can also reach me at Paige Turner's BTM at gmail.com. That's Paige Turner's BTM at gmail.com. Send me a message, man. Let's 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 chop this up. Uh, I love to hear your ideas. I love to hear your comments, your criticisms. Whatever you got, bring it to the table. So let's jump into the text. Okay, uh, again, session one is Black Theology, Black Power by Dr. James H. Cohn. We are still in chapter two, titled The Gospel of Jesus, Black People and Black Power. And the text reads as follows. When St. Paul speaks of being a new creature in Christ, the redeemed black man takes that literally. He glorifies blackness not as a means of glorifying self in an egotistical sense, but merely as an acceptance of the black self as a creature of God. But what does it mean for the black man to love the neighbor, especially the white neighbor? To love the white man means that the black man confronts him as a thou without any intentions of giving ground by becoming an it. Though the white man is accustomed to addressing an it, the new black man he meets a vow. The black man must, if he is not to lose sight of his newfound identity in Christ, be prepared for conflict for a radical confrontation. As one black man put it, profound love can only exist between two equals. The new black man refuses to assume the it role which whites expect, but addresses them as an equal. This is when the conflict arises. Therefore, the new black man refuses to speak of love without justice and power. Love without the power to guarantee justice in human relations is meaningless. Indeed, there is no place in Christian theology for sentimental love. Love without risk or cost. Love demands all, the whole of one's being. Thus, for the black man to believe that the word of God about his love revealed in Christ, he must be prepared to meet head on head on the sentimental Christian love of whites, which would make him a non-person. The insistence that love, power, and justice are inseparable seems to be one of Paul Tillich's contributions to contemporary theology, offsetting the dangerous emphasis on powerlessness or weakness in the face of inhumanity. Love and power, writes Tillich, are often contrasted in such a way that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. 
Powerless love and loveless power are contrasted, but such an understanding is error and confusion. Therefore, he rejects the traditional view with his emphasis on emotion as an inadequate representation of love. Since love is the reunion of the extremes, and one may be extremes from self as well as from another, and since power is the possibility of self-affirmation in spite of internal and external negation, both love and power must be interrelated. Power becomes the possibility of the reunion of self with self and with other. Without power, love would cease to be love because reunion would be impossible and being would become non-being. That is why Tulik says, love is the foundation, not the negation of power. And that is why black power is an indispensable element in black-white relations. If we are going to speak from a Christian perspective, taking his cue from Luther, Tulik speaks to the essence of black power and the uniqueness of Christianity when he says, it is the strange work of love to destroy what is against love. Love conflicts with compulsory power only when it prevents the aim of love, namely the reunion of the separated. And this is important, man, this discussion about power. That's not something that black Christians often speak about or address, and that's power. Our lack of power or our need of power. And I think that has a lot to do with how westernized white evangelical Christianity has conditioned so many black people to be docile and to seek and to give love without demanding or demonstrating power. You see that often. That's that's that's, that's one of the, the standard operating tropes of white supremacists that they always talk about how we should love. White liberals love to push the narrative of we need to love each other. Foolishness. And the text reads, it seems that whites forget about the necessary interrelatedness of love, justice, and power when they encounter black people. Love becomes emotional and sentimental. This sentimental condescending love accounts for the desire to help by relieving the physical pains of the suffering blacks so they can satisfy their own religious piety and keep the power, power the poor powerless. But the new blacks, redeemed in Christ, must refuse their help and demand that blacks be confronted as persons. They must say to whites that authentic love is not help. They must say to whites that authentic love is not help. Not giving Christmas baskets, but working for political, social, economic justice, which always means a redistribution of power. It is the kind of power which enables the blacks to fight their own battles and thus keep their dignity. Powerlessness breeds a race of beggars. Man, I want to throw this dog gone book because part of what we see so clear within institutionalized Christianity is the giving of Christmas bags, the handing out of book bags, the giving out of winter coats, the, the, the giving out and doing Christmas and Thanksgiving dinners, having a food 
pantry. But what you do not see, you do not see is the distribution of power, the distribution of resources to acquire power. You don't see from white churches who want to come in the hood and help out and do quote-unquote missionary work, making sure that their white congregants put forth some money to redistrib- redistribute the in, uh, the redistribute power and to correct the scales of justice from a socio-political economic standpoint. But what they will do is they'll have Bible studies. They'll have, you know, book readings. They'll, they'll, they'll read the latest book read, uh, book on racism, white supremacy. But they won't do the necessary work of redistribute. They won't crack open their bank accounts. They won't crack open their bank accounts to redistribute their wealth throughout poor and impoverished communities, but they want to love up on them. Powerlessness breeds a race of beggars. And the text continues. It is evident then that the main difficulty which most whites have with black power and its relationship to the Christian gospel stems from their own inability to translate traditional theological language into the life situation of black people. The black man's response to God's act in Christ must be different from a white man, from whites because his life experiences are different. Christian love is never fully embodied in an act. Love is the motive or the rationale for action. The attempt of some to measure love exclusively by specific actions such as nonviolence is theologically incorrect. Christian love comprises the being of a man whereby he behaves as if God is the essence of his existence. It means that God has hold of him and his movement in the world. But this does not take away the finiteness of man, the existential doubt and making decisions in the world. To accept Christ means both self-acceptance and neighbor acceptance with the existential threat of non-being. What existentialists call non-being is never removed from from man's existence. Thus, the love of self and the love of neighbor which constitute the heart of one's being in God, never escapes the possibility of self-annihilation and destruction of the neighbor. The violence in the cities, which appear to contradict Christian love, is nothing but the black man's attempt to say yes to his being as defined by God in a world that would make his being into a non-being. If the riots are the black man's courage to say yes to himself, as a creature of God, and if an affirming self he affirms yes to the neighbor, then violence may be the black man's expression, sometimes the only possible expression of Christian love to the white oppressor. From the perspective of a Christian theologian, seeking to take seriously the black man's condition in America, what other view is possible? It seems that the mistake most whites 
religious include is their insistence on telling blacks how to respond as Christians to racism, insisting that nonviolence is the only appropriate response. But there is an ugly contrast between the sweet nonviolent language of white Christians and their participation in a violently unjust system. Yeah, they, they, they can scream out how we need to, 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 to be fair and to love and to do all those things in a Christian manner, but they don't want to acknowledge how they participate in a violent, unjust system. Maybe the oppressor's being is so warped by his own view of himself that every analysis made for him merely reveals his own inflated self-evaluation. Certainly, as long as he can count on blacks remaining nonviolent by turning the other cheek and accepting the conditions of slavery, there will be no pressure to confront the black man as a person. <laughs> if he can be sure that blacks will not threaten his wealth, his superiority, his power in the world, there will be no need to give up his control of the black man's destiny. One cannot help but think that most whites love Martin Luther King Jr., not because of his attempt to free his people, but because his approach was the least threatening to the white power structure. A freaking man. It wasn't that they agreed with his approach. It wasn't that they supported his approach because of what he was stating. They supported, many did, because it was not nearly as threatening as, say, someone like... Hmm, Malcolm X. Yeah. And the text reads, Thus, churchmen and theologians grasped up the opportunity to identify with him so that it could keep blacks powerless and simultaneously appease their own guilt about white oppression. It was only a few years back that King's name was even more radical than that of Rat Brown or Stokely Carmichael. At that time, the question was being asked whether civil disobedience was consistent with Christianity. What whites really want is for the black man to respond with that method which best preserves white racism. Yeah. All this suggests that white judgments about Christian love related to black power are as suspect as their own judgments relative to black America. Oh my goodness, man, we're going to finish this chapter because this next portion of chapter two is titled The Holy Spirit and Black Power. And the text reads, traditional Christian theology describes the activity of God today in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of God and of Christ that work today in the lives of men, accomplishing the work of salvation begun in the election of Israel and continued in Christ. The process of God in Christ in the manifestation of the outpouring of the Spirit was so evident to the experience of the early Christian community that the church fathers thought it theologically necessary to speak of God as a trinity, protecting on the one hand the unity of the Godhead and on the other the threefold revelation of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is important for our purposes and for the purposes of traditional theology to remember that God's manifestation as spirit is indispensable for the total picture of the Christian God. God was revealed as spirit in the Old Testament 
and in the new, and his presence today is in the form of the Holy Spirit. This, however, should not be taken to mean that God is spirit in the biblical tradition or contemporary theology is something other than God as father and son. <laughs> in fact, the Holy Spirit is nothing but the spirit of God in Christ working out his will in the lives of men. The Holy Spirit is the power of God at work in the world, affecting in the life of his people, his intended purposes. It is for this reason that Edward Schweizer says, the spirit of God is power and power with a moral emphasis. God's spirit is not just subjective feeling of piety or inspirations in the hearts of men, but rather an active power that is to say it is the personal activity of God's will achieving a moral and religious object. That is why the Bible sometimes identifies the operation of the spirit with the wind, which manifests power and is at the same time mysterious. The wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes nor where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. <laughs> with the death and resurrection of Christ, the gift of the spirit to persons rare in the Old Testament becomes a possibility for all who responded to God's act in Christ in faithful obedience. The Spirit becomes the power of Christ himself at work in the life of the believer. The man possessed by God's Spirit has no time to ask abstract questions about how the poor got to be poor or why blacks are hated by whites. All he knows is that the Gestapos are busy again and the prisons are filling up the torturers are once again inventing, perfecting, consulting over their workbenches, and he cannot close his eyes to it. Like John Brown, who lived and breathed justice, the man of the spirit can only say, racism is evil, kill it. But we must study the problem. Racism is evil, kill it. We will hold a conference. Racism is evil, kill it. But our allies, racism is evil, kill it. <laughs> There's no time for talk when men are suffering. For the man of the spirit, racism is not a word, it is a fact, a ghetto, poverty, and event. He therefore must join and take sides with the sufferer. To be possessed by God's spirit means that the believer is willing to be obedient unto death, becoming the means through which wisdom from God makes his will known and the vehicle of the activity of God himself. It should be pointed out here that the work of the Spirit is not always a conscious activity on the part of the persons through God works. In fact, God may not even use the non-believer, as in the case of the Persian emperor Cyrus, or he may not use persons who are not conscious of being for or against God, but merely against the suffering of men. This seems to be at least part of the point of the parable of the Last Judgment. Men are placed on the right and on the left according to their ministering to their neighbors. Those on the right were surprised. Lord, when did you see them? When did we see thee hungry and feed thee or thirsty or give thee drink? Lord, I pray that whoever that ambulance is headed to see 
It's been rough out here, man. I I I, just, I hated to pause that, but we I know you guys will hear the sirens. It's rough out here. It's been heavy torrential uh, rains all day today, so the roads have been rather tricky, rather tricky. And the text reads, "Black power, though not consciously seeking to be Christian, seems to be where men are in trouble." And to the extent that it is genuinely concerned and seeks to meet the needs of the oppressed, it is a work of God's spirit. By contrast, the self-conscious Christian person so easily uses the poor as a meaning to his own salvation. But unless the condition of the poor becomes the condition of the Christian, not because he feels sorry for the poor, but because through the spirit of Christ, he is in fact poor. All acts done on behalf of them are nothing in the eyes of God. But how can a believer be certain that he is possessed by the Spirit? Or how can he be sure where God is at work? There are no abstract tests or objective guarantees that one is doing the work of God. There is only a subjective certainty in which one knows that he is in touch with the real, what Paul calls the Spirit in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's Galatians 4.5. It is what Saren Kinkelgaard calls the passive inwardness. Faith is the objective uncertainty due to the repulsion of the absurd held fast by the passion of inwardness, which is, which in this instance is intensified to the utmost degree. It is absurd because there is no objective scientific criteria to judge whether one is right. In fact, he who, from the vantage point of a higher education, would know his faith as a factor resolved in a higher idea as cease to believe. It is an existential certainty which grips the whole of one's being in such a way that now all actions are done in light of ultimate reality. Karl Barth calls this subjective reality revelation. It is our freedom to be children of God and to know and love and praise him in his revelation. There are no rational tests to measure this quality of being grasped in the depths of one being. The existence is its own evidence, the ultimate datum. To seek for a higher evidence, a more objective proof, such as the Bible, the fathers, or the church, implies that such evidence is more real than the encounter itself. According to Horton, there is nothing the Christian can point to that is more convincing than relationship itself. The relationship itself carries with it its own power to convince. Black power, then, is God's new way of acting in America. It is his way of saying to blacks that they are human beings. He is saying to whites, get used to it. Whites as well as some blacks will find the encounter of black power a terrible experience. Like the people of Jesus' day, they will find it hard to believe that God would stoop so low as to reveal himself in and through black people and especially the undesirable elements. If he has to make himself known through blacks, why not choose the good Negroes? But that is just the point. God encounters men at the level of expertise, which challenges their being. The real test of whether whites can communicate with blacks as human beings is not what they reply to 
Ralph Bunch, but how to respond to rap brown. Mm-mm-mm. Family letters are reading for tonight. We have just concluded chapter two of Black Theology and Black Power by Dr. James H. Cohn. Chapter three will be titled The White Church and Black Power. It is your boy, your host of the Page Turners, Elgin Bailey, also known as Mr. Catch-22, also known as Big L, also known as, you know what, also known as, it's starting to sound like hashtags. Y'all be easy, man. Till next time.